Hello and welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar series and podcast. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Kyle Scheidler, Director and Senior Analyst for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism at the Center for Security Policy, join us to discuss known wolves, federal counterterrorism slip-ups, and the need for state-level terrorism laws. Mr. Scheidler will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Kyle Scheidler. Thank you, Stacy, And thank you to the Middle East uh, Forum for making this venue available to talk about what I think is a, a pretty interesting and, and, and important topic uh, in terms of dealing with terrorism in the United States going forward. So let's go back in time a little bit to immediately after 9-11, uh, where you know, suddenly counterterrorism becomes the major focus of the FBI for obvious reasons. And I would argue that in the years immediately following 9-11, the FBI's handling of terrorism cases is pretty good. They break a number of major uh, material support for terrorism cases, like the Holy Land Foundation, uh, Abdurrahman Alamudi, Sami Al-Aryan, they break up a number of major uh, potential plots. And the guiding document really for the whole federal government to understand the terror threat at this point was the 9-11 Commission report. And that report covered both the nature of Al-Qaeda and the threat it represented, as well as the role played by Islamist groups like the Muslim Brotherhood uh, and Jamaat al-Islami and others in supporting jihadist terrorism. And so maybe the high watermark of the FBI's handling of terrorism really was the Holy Land Foundation case, uh, and then subsequently the decision by FBI leadership to cut off access to the Council on American-Islamic Relations, which, as most of you probably know, is a Muslim Brotherhood-linked, Hamas-linked um, Islamist lobby group in the United States. So that's sort of how things start immediately after 9-11. But beginning in the late Bush and then early Obama administrations, we start to see a really considerable drift in the way that the FBI and really all federal law enforcement starts to handle terrorism. Uh, for example, you have no major domestic Islamist charities that are investigated or put on terror uh, treasury lists for material support for terrorism beginning in about 2009 and onward even to today. Um, we began to see a steady rise in the number of what my friend, terrorism researcher Patrick Poole coined, known wolf attacks. That is uh, a terror attack where the assailant was already known to intelligence or law enforcement prior to the incident, but yet is still able to successfully carry out an attack. Uh, you also have a growing trend of the FBI effectively denying uh, what is obviously a jihadist motivated attack is a case of terrorism. And let me give you some examples. In June of 2009, you have the Little Rock, Arkansas uh, military recruiting station attack conducted by Carlos Bledsoe, AKA Abdul Hakim Mujahid Mohammed. It kills one and wounds another. Uh, Mohammed was converted and indoctrinated at a local university Muslim Students Association. He traveled abroad to Yemen to a school known to be a recruiting ground uh, for Al Qaeda. And when he returned to the United States, he was interviewed by the FBI, uh, but they subsequently essentially dropped the case and, and lost interest in him. And he later conducted the attack. 
Now, interestingly, the FBI and the Department of Justice declined to prosecute Bledsoe on terrorism charges in that case, uh, despite the fact that he himself uh, identified himself as a jihadist, he identified himself as affiliated with Al-Qaeda and stated the motives for his attack, but they declined to prosecute on terror charges and he ends up being charged in state court. June 2011, you have Nadal Hassan. He kills 13 people at Fort Hood, Texas. Uh, even though the FBI knew prior to the attack that Hassan had been in direct contact with Al-Qaeda ideologue Anwar al-Awlaki, and despite the fact that Hassan had conducted a PowerPoint presentation where he discussed the role of Sharia in motivating jihadist attacks, the FBI and the federal government officially classify that attack as workplace violence. July 2015, 24-year-old Mohammed Youssef Abdelaziz kills 24, excuse me, kills four Marines and wounds a police officer in an attack on another recruiting station in Chattanooga. Abdelaziz had attended a local mosque with a history of ties to the Muslim Brotherhood, and media reported that both Abdelaziz and his father may have been on terrorism watch lists prior to the attack. The Department of Justice told victims, family members, that the motive in that case may never be known. 2015, an undercover FBI agent literally follows two ISIS shooters to the Garland, Texas Convention Center, where Robert Spencer and Pamela Geller are conducting a free speech event. Local law enforcement shoot and kill the attackers before they can conduct the massacre. And in that case, you had an undercover FBI agent who had actually texted the attackers uh, who were talking about the, the event, and he told them to, quote, tear up Texas. 2016, Omar Mateen kills 49 people in the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. The FBI releases an edited partial transcript of the killer's 911 call, which does not include uh, his oath of allegiance to the Islamic State. This leads to uh, the media promoting theories that the attack was actually a homophobic hate crime, not a jihadist terror attack. It later comes out that Mateen's father had been an FBI informant and that they had even considered recruiting Mateen himself to serve as an FBI source. Uh, so we're still, and we're still seeing the effects of this today. Uh, you had in the example out in Boulder, Colorado of an attack on a kosher grocery store by a Syrian immigrant. Uh, that case is officially being treated essentially as a mental health issue. Uh, but you have these cases and they go across uh, administrations. So it's not just a political problem, uh, but it's clearly a bureaucratic problem. So what has happened and what can be done about it? Well, one of the major problems with modern federal law enforcement is embracing this narrative of countering violent extremism. And this, uh, this model uh, eliminates the traditional understanding of terrorism as politically motivated, and it replaces it with a sort of psychological model of extremism, which treats, uh, treats terrorism as an attitude or personality trait unconnected to ideology. And this has led to a number of problems with conflating terrorism attacks with a wide variety of other violent incidents, uh, including conflation with hate crimes incidents and active shooter or thrill killer incidents. Uh, and while these attacks uh, may produce similar results, they have different motivations and the ways to detect and prevent them uh, are different. But this has devolved in, in the federal language and the way federal law enforcement talks about terrorism to the point where uh, the Biden administration's counterterrorism strategy for uh, the most recent year essentially treats hate crimes and, and terrorism as though they were identical. And of course, they're not. And this has come to impact not just jih jihadist terrorism, by the way, but
but also the way that the FBI handles left-wing or anarchist extremist motivated terrorism. We've seen cases where the DOJ refuses to charge or identify uh, terrorism cases uh, that have obvious left-wing political violence ties. And these include examples of federal, fe federal felony arson by anarchists or Antifa groups throwing Molotov cocktails at police officers or courthouses. These should be ready-made terrorism cases. Uh, federal uh, felony arson is a, is a terrorism predicate at the federal level. So if you could prove a political motive, you could, you could charge terrorism in a case like that. And we're not seeing uh, the FBI and, and the DOJ bring those kinds of cases. And this in turn creates a problem of uh, an appearance of political motivation and leads to distrust. A recent Rasmussen report showed that two thirds of Republicans and almost a third of Democrats viewed the FBI as heavily politicized, uh, even goes, going so far as to agreeing with the statement uh, that the FBI was acting as President Biden's quote, Gestapo. So you have uh, a high degree of increase in people on both sides of the aisle considering the FBI's uh, behavior and the way they make decisions about cases as being very, very political. So that's a major problem. So what can be done? Well, to begin with, I have argued that the state governments should begin to take a far more active role in investigating and prosecuting terrorism offenses. Roughly 35 states have a terrorism statute and most of them are pretty comparable to the existing federal law. Uh, that means it requires a violent criminal act uh, to serve as a predicate crime. Uh, I mentioned arson, but also things involving explosives, things involving uh, assassinations or attempted attacks on um, elected officials or government agents, for example, might be included in that. Uh, and there are a wide variety of other predicates, but it's pretty similar to, to what exists at the federal level. Uh, in some cases, it's a little bit tighter and a little bit better. Uh, Arizona, for example, has a tougher uh, state terrorism statute than the federal statute, and we've seen it used very effectively. Uh, there was also a case in New York State uh, where a suspect uh, had a plot to target multiple synagogues, and New York State brought a terrorism charge successfully in, in that case. We even have cases where federal agents actively hand over their case to state prosecutors uh, because making the case at the state level is viewed as easier than trying to go through the federal bureaucracy. Uh, if they treat it as a federal, uh, if they treat it as a terror crime at the federal level, it creates all kinds of problems for them. So you, you see federal agents trying to use state terrorism laws uh, successfully as well. We have had a few cases where I think state terrorism laws have been invoked for maybe questionable reasons. Uh, an example would be a recent case out of Michigan where a school shooter with no obvious political motive was, uh, is currently facing state terrorism charges. Uh, that case is ongoing. We'll find out, I guess, whether there's, there's more evidence of motive that may justify that invocation uh, of terrorism, but, but so far I haven't seen it. Uh, the other problem we have uh, with bringing in state level law enforcement and local level law enforcement to dealing with terror threats is uh, right now the, the process of dealing with terrorism really goes primarily through the Joint Terrorism Task Force forces, which are led by the FBI. Uh, this was in, instituted you know, after 9-11. The idea was that they would bring in state and local law enforcement into these FBI-led JTTFs 
and in turn, these local and state law enforcement could help uh, spread the word, build up good relationships with local and state law enforcement, and really help bring local and state law enforcement into the process. We've had a number of problems with that. Uh, from what I've heard, you have local law enforcement uh, that are brought into these JTTFs are essentially NDA'd, so they can't share information that they receive, uh, even though that's kind of the point. You also have reports of JTTFs being very notoriously closed-lipped, uh, unwilling to share information, even with DHS-supported state fusion centers. And you get a lot of reports of just major distrust between the FBI and, and local law enforcement. So this is breaking down. But at the end of the day, states have every right to enforce state laws against terrorism. And if the FBI is manifestly failing, which I would argue that it is, uh, then maybe it's time to have states start developing their own processes. Examples of this being done well include the uh, NYPD counterterrorism intelligence program. Uh, it, they majorly ramped up after 9-11. They did, in my opinion, a lot of things right. Uh, I would encourage everyone to take a look at the NYPD shield report on homegrown radicalization, uh, which talked about how individuals are, are radicalized to, to become jihadists was an excellent, excellent report, uh, really a hallmark of how to do things correctly, in my opinion. The NYPD even went so far as to embed local police officers in foreign city police departments to try and generate leads. So if you had a jihadist plot in Paris, for example, uh, the Paris police would have somebody from the NYPD that they knew who to talk to. Couple other points real quick on things that I think are worth doing. Uh, States can toughen their state terror statutes as well. Uh, one of the ways to do this is to pass what's called Andy's Law. It was named after Private Andy Long, who was one of the individuals killed in that Little Rock, Arkansas jihadist attack. Uh, and the law allows for both states and terrorism victims to file suit uh, to target the assets, both of individuals who conduct terror attacks or uh, to file suit against entities who provided material support for a terror attack or attempted a terror attack. It also provides for treble damages and attorney fees uh, in civil suits against entities which materially supported a terror attack. And that's to provide encouragement for civil attorneys to, to take these suits up and really, uh, you know, really try to um, put pressure on these groups that maybe provide material support for terrorism. Uh, states that don't have a material support for terrorism uh, statute within their state terrorism statutes should really consider updating those statutes as well uh, to provide for that, obviously, and usually when that's done, it, it simply mirrors what's done at the federal level in terms of material support. We've seen Andy's law passed in Louisiana, Tennessee, Kansas, Florida, North Carolina, and Arkansas, and in the next couple of years, I'd like to see that, that really increase. The other issue, uh, and I know I'm short on time, that I think is worth states picking up is uh, in the next couple of years, we are going to see convicted terrorists released from prison in record numbers. Uh, we have a lot of people that were convicted of terrorism shortly after 9-11 and those who received relatively short charges, uh, short, short sentences, I should say, uh, re usually related to things like trying to travel to Syria to join the Islamic State. The sentences in those cases, not terribly long. Uh, and so I would encourage states to consider adopting a terrorist offenders registry, registry for convicted terrorists. 
this operates in the same way as a sex offenders registry. So it only applies to convicted terrorists, uh, but it would require a convicted terrorist to notify local law enforcement when they move to a new jurisdiction. Um, and this gives local law enforcement an idea of who in their, you know, who in their neighborhood is a potential threat. We have seen uh, major attacks from recidivist terrorists in, in, in the U United Kingdom uh, and in France. And I am concerned that we will see similar attacks here in the United States. And so this would be one way to try to give local law enforcement some tools to head that off. Um, in the case of Louisiana, they actually passed a law that said uh, that the state police database would have a flag so that local police officers would know if they were interacting with a convicted terrorist, uh, say during a traffic stop or if they're called to a, to, a, to a home. So I think those are good examples of ways that we can get state and local law enforcement engaged in the fight against terrorism uh, and we can start developing alternatives to, to the failed model that we're currently seeing uh, at the federal level. And I will uh, leave it at that for questions. All right, thank you so much. Uh, real quick, before we get into too many questions, can you just sum up why you think the FBI is unwilling to uh, publicize these Islamist motivations? Uh, is it because of the bureaucracy or is it easier at the state level or because it's so politicized? I think it's a number of things. I think it's politi it's politicized. I think uh, given the nature of the countering violent extremism narrative and the kind of training that the FBI now gets and gives on terrorism, they have a very low understanding of jihadist motivations. Uh, you had the example in Colveyville, Texas, where the individual took over a synagogue uh, in a hostage taking in an attempt to release convicted Al-Qaeda terrorist, uh, Afia Siddiqui. And the FBI comes out and says uh, that he was motivated by a single, uh, a single incident or a single topic unrelated to the Jewish community. Well, no, clearly not. Uh, clearly uh, he understood or he believed uh, anti-Semitically that uh, somehow the Jews had an ability to get a terrorist uh, who was convicted and in prison uh, out out of jail. So, and, and you understand, obviously, you know, the, the jihadist motivation and, and both in having the terrorists released and, and also in, in targeting Jews. So the fact that the FBI isn't able to understand that in a case like that is very worrisome. Thank you. David Levine asks, the FBI and local police forces conspicuously avoid mentioning the race of the perpetrators when the assailants are Black and Latinos or Latinos. Uh, isn't the FBI silence about Muslim terrorists an extension of a deliberate policy to avoid revealing the true disproportionate numbers that the left's favorite minorities play in perpetrating crime in the U.S. today? So you definitely do have a lack of desire to identify suspects um, to, to release names. You know, after a, a terrorist incident in the United States, everybody's sort of holding their breath to, to figure out uh, what the suspect's name is going to be uh, in order to try to figure out what the motivation might be. And in part, that's because uh, federal law enforcement is not being forthright about who the suspects are and what motivated them. And so that's a really 
un, you know, it, it creates all kinds of political problems. It leads to distrust uh, between the citizenry and federal law enforcement when the federal, you know, the feds can't simply be open and honest about who committed a crime and, and why they believe they committed them, why they believe they committed it. And that's a problem. Thank you. Carolyn Cohen asks, uh, you mentioned Antifa as an example of leftist theory, terrorist bombing of courthouses, et cetera. Are there also Black Lives Matter terrorists on acts under the leftist incitement area? Yeah, sure. You, you certainly have a, I mean, you have a wide um, swath of what I would term broadly left-wing extremism. Uh, that's the term that, you know, groups like German intelligence use to describe their own uh, actors. And within that, you have anarchist extremists, which are like your Antifa types. You also have more traditional Marxist terrorists. You have uh, black identity extremism is what the FBI used to call it. Uh, they no longer use that term, uh, which can include both um, black identity uh, extremism, like uh, would be like things like Nation of Islam or um, black Hebrews, um, where, where the, the ideology comes out of their, their self-identification. And then you also have examples of um, black separatist violence, which comes out of uh, sort of a left-wing model. So you have the, the, the traditional Black Panthers back in the 1960s, 1970s, who were ultimately Marxists uh, and sort of similar ideologies today. So within that um, milieu, you have a lot of different, uh, different ideologies. Uh, but yeah, there's violence that comes out of that. Thank you. Dennis D. Karp asks, uh, why do you think Pompeo has not uh, pushed DOJ indictment or investigation against Iran for assassination plan? Sure, that's a great question. So uh, you had the case in, when was that? Uh, but you had the case where the, the uh, IRGC had apparently worked with an Iranian in Texas or on the border uh, to try to uh, recruit uh, cartel members to, to conduct a bombing in Washington, D.C. that uh, would have targeted the Saudi ambassador and, and maybe a number of other individuals. And they did, I mean, they did, to their credit, they did identify the, the IRGC links. They brought charges to, to, against Iranian officials in that case. But they really, I think they really could have uh, turned up the volume on it, uh, and they haven't done that. And we saw, pri I mean, prior to the Trump administration, obviously the Obama administration had downplayed threats from Hezbollah, threats from the IRGC. Uh, you had that uh, story that came out about how they had sort of stepped on a, a, a DEA investigation of Hezbollah because they didn't want it to be uh, to come out at the same time that they were working on the Iran deal. And I mean, I would argue even within the State Department under the Trump administration, you still had a number of bureaucrats who were still beholden to, to the Iran deal, still wanted to re-implement the Iran deal. Uh, so he, I'm sure that Pompeo met a lot of resistance uh, on anything that was critical of Iran during that period. Understood, thank you. Ken Miller asked, despite the change from the Obama Democrat presidency to the Trump Republican president, presidency, Trump was unable to eliminate the political infiltration of the FBI to any extent. With the change to the Biden administration, the politi 
radicalization of the FBI has been increased to a great extent and the focus on American citizens who disagree with the progressive agenda by the FBI has increased greatly. Do you believe that if the Republicans retake the presidency that there is the capability of eliminating the politicalization is at all possible or without court system block attempts as it is under Trump? So obviously the Trump administration ran into serious problems uh, when they had uh, fired one FBI director and then the, subsequently the, the second FBI director, Ray, uh, was in a lot of ways not a whole lot better uh, on some of these issues. And no, there was very, I mean, there was very little progress by the Trump administration in rolling back the FBI's behavior. A lot of this is deeply bureaucratic. The FBI structure uh, gives a great deal of power to the Washington field office and to the bureaucrats that, that run it. Uh, so a lot of your hard charging uh, field agents uh, in, in field offices around the country who really just wanna go catch bad guys uh, are forced to do tours through the Washington field office if they wanna get promoted. Uh, they have to run things up the flagpole at the home office if they wanna do any kind of aggressive investigations sometimes. Uh, all of which leads to politicization. Uh, and I think uh, the questioner is right when he says that the inability of the Trump administration to address this problem did encourage the Biden administration to make it worse. I, I have argued in the press that the Biden counterterrorism strategy uh, at this point really is just a list of things that the Biden administration is being heard on politically. Uh, you have the, the example, of course, of the FBI looking at uh, protests at school boards. Um, that created a, a major buzz uh, to the point where you do have uh, GOP congressmen and senators asking uh, pretty pointed questions of the FBI about that behavior. Uh, and they simply have, have sort of ignored oversight. They don't give uh, useful answers to Congress seek, seeking questions and things like this. And so we haven't seen an advancement. Can a future president change that? I think it's gonna to be tough. Uh, I'd like to see major structural changes. Uh, I would be willing to go so far as to have uh, local FBI field office supervisors, uh, Senate confirmed uh, to sort of break some of the power of the Washington field office. Uh, that's similar to the way the U.S. Marshal Service operates. Each uh, each deputy marshal in a region is Senate confirmed. So maybe that would be something you could do. Um, but yeah, I agree. It's something that, that a future president needs to get a handle on uh, if they want a federal law enforcement bureaucracy that works and that people trust. Thank you. Uh, Robert Larrick asks, couldn't you say anti-Semitism and hate against other minorities as well is a serious risk assessment that should be closely followed and intervened when creating a high risk of a plot or crime? I think that's, uh, I think that's fair to a certain extent. There are definitely a number of ideologies, not just jihadism, uh, where anti-Semitism plays a major role. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily, uh, so we, we want to be able to understand that. Uh, it doesn't necessarily help us narrow down what the motivation of a given actor is, uh, which can lead to all kinds of problems. For example, in the attack on a, I think it was a kosher deli or a kosher grocery store in, in New York City, it was conducted by members of the Black Hebrew, which are a Black identity 
uh, group. There was actually a, a, a US Congress uh, terrorism legislation that included that incident as an example uh, of terrorism committed by white supremacists, uh, even, though it, even though it was committed by black identity extremists. So uh, anti-Semitism, I think, is definitely a flag for violence of a number of extremist groups, but it doesn't necessarily help us narrow down what group they are, how they operate, what they think. Um, so you, we, you can start there, but you can't stop there. You've got to, you've got to do more work. You have to understand each ideology uh, on its own, I was going to say on its own merits, but I don't want to make it sound like terrorist ideologies have merits, but uh, you do have to understand them by themselves. What do the actors believe? Why do they believe it? How did it, uh, this ideology come about? What are the different sects and, 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 and behaviors? Uh, all of these things need to be understood on their own merit for each group uh, or each ideology, in my humble opinion. Speaking of your humble opinion, uh, what do you think, uh, to sum up, what do you think that should be done? What should be done? Well, I would, as I said, I would really like to see state law enforcement start taking the lead in terrorism cases. Uh, if they have state terrorism laws, start charging uh, on uh, with those laws. Don't necessarily turn every violent incident over to the FBI to investigate if you think there might be a terrorism Nexus uh, assert, you know, states should start to assert themselves. They have a vested interest in seeing these uh, these cases investigated properly. I would like to see state and local law enforcement uh, do more counterterrorism work on their own, uh, set up their own departments, certainly liaise with the feds, certainly speak to them, certainly share information, but don't feel uh, that terrorism is something that only the FBI is in charge of. Uh, and that you have no right to investigate it, you have no right to be interested in it. You absolutely have a right. Your local officers are gonna be the first responders to any terrorism incident. The more they understand about terrorist ideology, the more they understand about terrorist behavior, the better they're equipped they're gonna to be to deal with it. The better equipped they're gonna be able to deal with it when they make a car stop and they see some materials or some items uh, that are suggestive of a terrorist motive. They should know what those are. They should be able to identify those. Uh, and unfortunately, the kind of training which they get from the feds, uh, from the federal government is lacking. And so they're gonna have to go elsewhere or they're gonna have to develop their own programs. And as I said, NYPD is a great example of a way to do this well uh, and, and lessons to be learned there. A lot of damage was done to the NYPD program uh, due to uh, recent administrations in New York City. Uh, but they still have a lot of great lessons learned. Uh, they probably are a lot of great NYPD counterterrorism officers who would love to go live somewhere else. Uh, so if you've got a local metropolis and, and you need some of that, uh, some of that background, I would suggest you know maybe trying to acquire it, build your own program, uh, and, and really start doing the work. And it's unfortunate, but the reality is you're not going to be able to rely on anybody else uh, if you're a state or local agency. You're going to have to do the work yourself. Thank you so much. And before we go, can you let our viewers know where we can find some more of your work? Sure. Uh, they can find all of my uh, work at the Center for Security Policy, which is available online at securefreedom.org. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at uh, Scheidler K. It's just my last name, K. 
All right. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. We've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Mr. Scheidler, for speaking with us. My pleasure. Uh, for our viewers, we will not be having our usual Israel Insider webinar with Ashley Perry this Wednesday. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.